Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may help you to have your Bibles open in front of you uh, on page 1249 and the little green sheet with the sermon notes on the back. Do you believe in heaven? It's a question asked in several social attitude surveys around 2007-2008. The results generally show that only around 50% of respondents believed in heaven and only 20% definitely believed. Furthermore, one survey revealed that women are much more likely to believe in heaven than men. So where do you stand? Are you with the around 50% who believe in heaven? You would expect that within Christian circles the results would be very different. A survey in 2014 in the US of the religious survey of the religious landscape showed that of those classified as belonging to the mainline Protestant church, the percentage of believing in heaven stood at 80%. This rose to 88% for evangelical Protestants, and the Catholics were in the middle at 85%. So there's still not a unanimous belief in heaven, even within the church. So as the results of all these surveys beg the question of what is it, what is it that we mean by heaven? So what is heaven? What does heaven mean to you? Have you given it much thought? How might you explain to an unbelieving friend or colleague? In today's society, the concept of heaven probably has little meaning to the majority of the population. They may recognise heaven as something up in the sky, beyond the sky, somewhere up there, where we can see the sun, moon and stars. For some, heaven will mean nothing more than a state of joy and happiness or a place of complete bliss, peace and happiness. You often hear people say that the place they went on holiday was perfect heaven, a tropical paradise. Popular songs down the ages have talked of heaven in terms of perfect relationships, I'm showing my age here with an example of a classic song written by Irving Berlin for the film Top Hat that has the words, I'm in heaven when I'm dancing cheek to cheek. To others, heaven will be the place they hope to go after death. But they have a little idea of what it really means. You hear jokes about St. Peter at the gates of heaven and souls waiting to be let in. And often we see heaven portrayed as people floating around on fluffy white clouds, listening to ethereal music all day long. All very nice, but it could be rather boring. In Islam, heaven is portrayed as, portrayed as Muhammad's paradise, a garden in which there are beautiful women, couches covered with rich brocades, flowing cups and luscious fruits, 
and in which God does not appear at all. It's seen as a place where your desires can be met and you can indulge in things forbidden in this life, all very sensuous and materialistic. Some of these perceptions of heaven probably contain an element of truth, beauty, peace, tranquility, people, relationships. But what does the Bible tell us about heaven? The main thing we're told is that heaven is where God is. Now, Isaiah 66, verse 1, we read, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. And in the Lord's Prayer, which we said earlier, we refer to our Father in heaven, and ask that his will be done on earth as in heaven. So heaven is where God is. So if we believe and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, what is this heaven to which we are looking forward with eager anticipation? And what makes it so great? There's a children's song which in a way encapsulates what heaven is like. Heaven is a wonderful place, filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Saviour's face, because heaven is a wonderful place. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And let's see how heaven is described here. We'll look at it under three headings. Firstly, a new creation. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This verse brings us to the climax of the book of Revelation and of God's salvation plan the creation of the new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem. The book of Revelation, written down by the Apostle John, is, as we're told in the first verse of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And the book as a whole addresses things relating to the situation at that time, which includes the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, and things that are happening in the future, which culminates with the final judgment in chapters 19 and 20, and then the creation of the new heaven and earth in chapters 21 and 22. And the intention of the book was to encourage believers in, the, uh, in that early church to stand firm in their faith against the pressures of the world and the temptations of the devil, and to reassure them of God's promise of protection. So in reading the book of Revelation, we must remember it is written in the style of apocalyptic literature, a style that's not very familiar to us today, but would have been familiar to those in the first century. It's a style of writing that is highly symbolic. The visions that are recorded in Revelation often seem very bizarre to us, but fortunately the book provides clues for its own interpretation also not intended to be a literal picture. So we're not expected to be able to take out our paintbrush and paint exactly what is described in the book. Rather, we should see it as a series of images that get piled one on top of the other 
each of which communicates some truth. And when John speaks of heaven and earth in these verses, we need to remember that the Bible uses the phrase heaven and earth as a way of expressing the totality of our environment. The heaven to which we look forward with eager anticipation is there for the new eternal environment, the new heaven and new earth in which we and all God's redeemed people will live. Chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation show how order will be restored into God's creation and has parallels with the first two books in Genesis where we see God creating the heavens and the earth and populating them with plants and living creatures and human beings. And at the end of the six days of creation, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. (coughs) God created a paradise and placed man, Adam, and woman, Eve, in that paradise, the Garden of Eden. A perfect place with all that you could want and more. But then sin came into the world and Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden so the people whom God had created were no longer in his perfect place. Ever since that time, God's people have been wandering, effectively in exile from God's perfect place. And they are still in exile today. God sent his son Jesus to rescue us and give us hope, the promise of eternal life to those who believe. But we are not yet in that perfect place. But there is hope and there is a promise. As we saw in our Old Testament reading in Isaiah 65, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth was promised through Isaiah. It was part of God's plan to create a perfect place for his redeemed people to dwell in eternity. And our opening verse from 2 Peter 3 confirms that in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And God always keeps his promise. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. But the creation of a new heaven and a new earth is contingent on the destruction, the passing away of the first heaven and the first earth. So how are we to interpret the passing away or destruction of the old order? In 2 Peter 3 we read that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. Will it be the Big Bang in reverse? Will the earth be smashed by a giant asteroid? Will the universe as we know it disappear? We can speculate all we like, but we can get a better idea of God's plan by looking back to the last time when God destroyed the earth. We read in Genesis chapter 6 that God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And at that time, God destroyed the earth by sending a flood. But he did not destroy the whole creation. 
The waters covered the earth and wiped out all but a few selected individuals and creatures. But the physical earth remained. The world as it had been existed at that time ended in terms of the destruction of the people living in it. And the new world was created after the flood. There was some continuity between the old and the new at that time. We might expect the same to be true with the creation of the new heavens and new earth, referred to in Revelation 21. We should not expect the new environment to be something completely alien, as witnessed by the fact that John recognised the new environment as being heavens and earth. So, from what we've seen so far, the new heaven and new earth will be something that is recognisable. Except verse 1 goes on to say, and there was no longer any sea. How can you have a paradise with no sea? What about sailing? Snorkeling, swimming? A paradise with no sea would be a totally alien environment. Don't be dismayed. Remember we're in Revelation and the language is symbolic. The use of the word sea here is a reference to the source of earthly rebellion, chaos and danger in the world. In Revelation 13 verse 1 we read of a beast coming out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, often identified with the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. And we see a similar vision of beasts emerging from the sea in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. The message is that the symbolic source of rebellion will no longer threaten creation's perfection. The source of evil, evil will no longer have any place in the new creation. Everything bad about this world will disappear. So we can look forward to a new creation, God's perfect place, a new Garden of Eden, a new paradise, and the new creation will be there for our enjoyment. As David Jackman says in his book, Teaching the Christian Hope, if the beauties and treasures of this world are wonderful, then we can be sure that the joys and fulfilments of heaven will far outshine them. As if a new eternal environment is not enough to excite us, there is more. Look at verse 2 of Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Which brings us on to our second heading, a new city. A new city, I hear you cry. Why a city? I want to get away from the city. I've lived practically all my life in a city and don't want to spend eternity in another city. I want to spend the rest of my days surrounded by idyllic countryside. Why a city? But this is no ordinary city. This is a special city. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's a city like nothing you have ever seen before. In verse 10, we read that John is taken up a great high mountain by an angel to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And what does he see? The holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And the verses that follow go into detail about the walls, gates, and foundations of the city, and how the gates represent the twelve tribes of Israel, and the foundations of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, thus uniting the New Testament church and the Old Testament people of God. And the gates face north, south, east, and west, making it easy for people from every corner of the world to enter. But what makes this city even more special is that it is dressed as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Don't you like a good wedding? What gets you most excited about a wedding? Is it the chance to buy a new outfit, to put on your finest clothes? Or perhaps it's the wedding music? Or is it the reception with its good food? Or the speeches, the anticipation of what the best man will have to say about the groom? Will he give away all his secrets? But for many, and particularly the groom, the highlight was the sight of the bride coming down coming down the aisle in a gorgeous outfit looking perfect with nothing out of place and with a veil hiding the smile of joy as she anticipates what lies ahead. What joy as the bride and groom take their vows and commit to one another for the rest of their lives. And here we see the holy city appearing as a bride. The holy city is the church of God the fellowship of believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And the church is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. What is more, the church is radiant, shining with the glory of God. It is pure and without blemish, clear as crystal. God's people, brought together in the holy city, have been made perfect. The bride and bridegroom are united for eternity. What's more, this city is a model of perfection and completeness. If you look down at verses 15 to 17, you will notice that all the dimensions given are multiples of 12. And the number 12 in biblical language signifies completeness or perfection. The city is described as a vast cube, bigger than anything we can imagine with sparkling jewels adorning it, and with streets of pure gold, transparent as glass. And what's the significance of the cube? When God gave instructions for the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 26, and the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, he gave specific dimensions for the different parts of the building. The innermost part, the most holy place, the place of God's presence, which only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement, was to be a cube and it was to be lined with gold. The place of God's presence with his people was a perfect cube. And here we see the biggest imaginable perfect cube as part of the new creation, the new city, large enough to accommodate all God's people. So the holy city is central to God's new creation. God's perfect people in God's perfect place. But it also holds 
our third heading, a new relationship. Perhaps the most important and exciting thing that we can look forward to is a new relationship with our Creator and His creation. Look with me at verses 3 to 5 of chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Not only will there be a new creation and a new people, but God will live with his people. If you remember, after the creation, God was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve until they hid themselves in shame and were expelled from the garden because of their sin. In the new creation, believers will be reunited with God. God will live with his people forever. This image of God living or walking with his people fulfills a promise made by God in Old Testament times. In Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12, God promises, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Of course, in historical times, the tabernacle and then the temple were the symbols of God's presence with his people. In the new creation, there is no need for a tabernacle or a temple because, as it says in Revelation 21, verse 22, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Instead of the people being excluded from the most holy place and hence from the presence of God, as in the old days, in the new creation, they will be inside with God. There will be no longer be any distance between the people and God. They will know him perfectly, see him face to face and have a perfect relationship with him. And as faithful followers of Christ, that applies to us too. Does that thought frighten you? It shouldn't do. It should be an occasion to rejoice. We will be presented before God without fault. We'll have no cause to be ashamed as our sin has been taken away by Christ at the cross. There is no more sin and no more judgment. The curse of sin placed on mankind after the fall will finally be removed. Consequently, there'll be no more pain and no more suffering and no more death because the old order of things has passed away. All that separated us from God and the Lamb will have been eliminated. God has made everything new, including you and me. Everything is restored to how God originally intended it to be. God's people in God's perfect place and under God's perfect rule. Sounds great, doesn't it? 
And there's a promise of further blessings as well. Look at verse 6. He said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. What God started with creation, he has finished with the new creation. His work is completed, and it is there for all who believe to enjoy. His people will be allowed to drink freely from the spring of the water of life, which, as we read in chapter 22, verse 1, flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Furthermore, his people will be able to benefit from the fruits of the tree of life, which stands by the river of the water of life, thus removing the curse that resulted from Adam and Eve's sinfulness when God said that man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God's people will once more be in the garden with God and the Lamb at the centre. So in heaven, this new creation, we see God's perfect people in God's perfect place, under God's perfect rule and blessing. Who are these blessings for? Look with me at verses 7 and 8. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur, and this is a second death. The blessings are promised to those who overcome. And we get some idea of what it means to overcome from chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, each of which ends with the phrase, to him who overcomes, I will give. Essentially what Jesus is saying through John to the seven churches is that they should repent, hold fast to the word of God, persevere through suffering and stand firm in their faith in the face of worldly pressures. Then he promises they will benefit from the rewards of the new heaven and new earth, which amongst other things include being given access to the tree of life, the crown of life, and authority over the nations. And they will be clothed in white, made a pillar of the temple of God, and will dine with Christ and be granted to sit with Christ on his throne. What an impressive set of things. What an inheritance. And the same message applies to us today. If we want to experience the glories of heaven the new creation, the new city, and the new relationships, we too must look, look to Jesus for our salvation and stand firm in our faith. We should not let anything divert our eyes from this glorious inheritance which God has promised to his people. So what is so great about heaven? The overriding message is that heaven is well worth waiting for in joyful anticipation. It is a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, but a place that is recognisable. It's not fluffy clouds and harps. It will be spectacular, far better than any exotic holiday in a tropical paradise, and it will be for eternity. 
It's a new city with God and the Lamb at the centre of the new creation. The people of God, the church, the bride, will be united with Christ, the bridegroom for eternity, and they will be radiant, reflecting the full glory of God. God's people will reign with Christ in glory. And it's a new relationship. God will be in the midst of his people forever. They will no longer be excluded from his presence and will see him face to face. They will return from exile to the place of his blessing. There will be no more death or pain or suffering since the curse of sin has been removed forever. And God's people enjoy rest and refreshment from the river of the water of life and from the tree of life. And all this is free to God's people. There's no expensive price tag, as with the exotic holiday in the tropical paradise. The full price has already been paid for those who believe and trust in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. All we need to do is believe and trust in him, standing firm in our faith. So we should be excited by this vision of heaven and encouraged to persevere in our faith despite the daily challenges we face, safe in the knowledge that God will protect those who put their trust in him. What could be more uplifting than the prospect of being in a perfect relationship with God and with others, in beautiful surroundings and with no pain, suffering or death? This is the heaven to which we as believers can look forward with eager anticipation being together with all God's people, made perfect in Christ, in God's perfect place, under God's perfect rule and blessing for eternity. God and his people in eternal glory. Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words, which we know are trustworthy and true. We thank you for the promise of a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness, and we look forward to its coming with eager anticipation. May we be encouraged to persevere in our faith in the face of the challenges of this world and to be ensured that you, Lord, will keep and sustain all who belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.